This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by doctors Emane Vanderwall and Chloe Grimm entitled Conservative versus Liberal Oxygenation Targets in Intensive Care Unit Patients, Iconic, a Randomized Controlled Trial. I'm joined today by the two lead authors of the study, both from the Departments of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care at Leiden University Medical Center. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Michael, for the introduction. We are very excited to tell you about the ICONIC trial, and we would like to start actually by thanking all the ICONIC investigators for their contribution to the study. Thank you, Dr. Graham. I understand there was a particular investigator you wanted to acknowledge. Yes, we would like to honor the memory of Paolo Pelosi for his important role in the ICONIC trial and in ICU research in general. Yes, Dr. Pelosi has definitely contributed a substantial amount, uh, not only to this study, but to uh, critical care in general. It's definitely a loss. Let's start by discussing the background for this study. So, Dr. Grimm, what are the supposed harms of targeting too high of an oxygen level? Well, a high oxygen level can cause lung injury and oxygen toxicity by the forming of free radicals. And free radicals are formed during aerobic metabolism, and ICU patients are more vulnerable to their effects, also because their antioxidant system is not functioning well and their uh, bodies are more frail. And high oxygen levels can also cause vasoconstriction and absorption atelectasis. Those, those risks are certainly present. And there's been some meta-analyses that have looked at those oxygen targets and concerned for those harms in the ICU. And there's also been some recent randomized controlled trials that have looked at oxygen targets. What's the reason for conducting your randomized controlled trial? Well, quite a while ago, one of the lead investigators of our trial, Professor de Jonge, he described a U-shaped relationships, a relationship of PO2 and mortality. And he published these results in 2008 in Critical Care. He found that higher mortality at high and low levels of PO2 was a higher risk of mortality. And in 2016, the first RCT on oxygenation in ICU patients was published. This paper was written by Girardis and colleagues and was published in JAMA. And they found that there was improved survival for a conservative oxygenation strategy. And we actually wanted to confirm these findings and also see if we would be able to reproduce those results with PO2 targets that are used daily in clinical practice. That's a great motivation. I think there's too few studies that try to confirm our original findings. And so it's very nice to actually do the work to see if we can replicate prior work. I, I noticed that the study was conducted in multiple countries, two different countries. There were eight Netherlands sites and one Italian site. And it looks like this was a fairly well-designed multi-center effort. When I review the inclusion and exclusion criteria, I noticed that there were several people that were excluded, including people who had severe ARDS. I'm wondering if you could explain what the rationale was for why you excluded those, those patients. Well, I can. 
uh, patients with severe ARDS were excluded because they were likely to require very high FeO2s for a long time if assigned to the high group. And by giving them those high FeO2s, they were still not likely to reach the high targets. And therefore, we decided to exclude these patients who had severe ARDS at the moment of inclusion. That may have some ramifications on the types of patients that we study. I was also thinking another potential aspect of that is the aspect of written consent. So this study was done with a written consent and mentally comparing this to the 2022 pragmatic study that was done at Vanderbilt by Semler et al., which was done with waiver of written consent. And so I got to imagine there must have been sub substantial challenges with obtaining consent in critically ill patients. How do you think that the requirement of written consent affected your patient population? Well, obtaining consent in critically ill patients can be very, very challenging. And by requiring consent, as was in our iconic trial, certain groups can be excluded. And of course, when you have a waiver of consent, all patients are included. And it is a better representation of the entire ICU population. And I think in hindsight, we should have tried to get a waiver of consent. That's always easier said than done. I know the challenges with trying to apply for that within my own institution. So let's talk about the oxygen targets uh, you chose. What targets did you choose and why did you choose them? Well, we randomized patients to either a low or a high target. And the low target was a PO2 level of 55 to 80 millimeters uh, mercury. And the high target was between 110 and 150. And the 110 and 150 was actually the target range that was found by Professor de Jonge to be the lowest range of mortality in his U-shaped association. And the 55 to 80 are actually the ranges advised by the ARDS net network of ventilation. And the targets were followed during the entire ICU admission for all patients. Yeah, well, it seems like that's a great rationale for why those targets were selected. I'm interested in the actual protocol. The protocol allowed titration that was based off peripheral oxygen saturation as well as uh, titration based off blood gas. And I'm wondering if there were any aspects of perhaps sicker patients who were more likely to get frequent assessment with blood gases and whether or not that had any effect on protocol titration. Well, I think you're right that sicker patients do get more blood gases. We required at least three arterial blood gases per 24 hours for all patients who were invasively ventilated, but it's still possible that sicker patients still got more than these three blood gases. But I, I actually think it might have been good for our protocol adherence because you would have more time points of checking if the protocols uh, was being uh, done correctly. So I think that would have positively influenced uh, the exposure to our study target ranges, actually. I think that's a very good point. And that also mimics what I think would likely be done in clinical practice. So how were physicians instructed to adjust the ventilator? Well, if PO2 values fell outside specified ranges... FeO2 or PEEP levels could be adjusted at the discretion of the treating physician. We did try to guide this process by providing a recommended PEEP and FeI2 table combination, but we deliberately did not have a very strict instruction on how to adjust the ventilator because we wanted our study to be as close to everyday practice as possible and not forcing people into a protocol. 
what did you do then if people couldn't actually achieve that target? How was that handled? Well, if the target could not be achieved, we did allow for protocol deviations from the target. And after such a protocol deviation, achievability of the target had to be assessed every two hours. So a protocol deviation could have been as somebody that was randomized to the high group and needing very high ventilator settings to achieve the targets. So we did have a escape plan for those. And what about blinding? I, ima I imagine it must have been very hard to try to attempt a blinding in a, in a group of patients like this. How did you handle that? Well, due to the nature of our intervention, it was not possible to blind clinicians to the intervention. But we don't think it would have influenced endpoints because endpoints we had, such as mortality, length of stay, or ventilator-free days, they are objective so we're less likely to be influenced by bias. And data analysts, they were blind, blinded for the study intervention. Dr. Vanderwell, the protocol that you guys were studying had safeguards in effect to avoid excess oxygen administration as well as excessive hypoxemia. And I'm wondering what you think the effect of those safeguards might have been, whether they could have affected study outcome. Perhaps if we didn't have those safeguards, we might see more harm on one of the arms. Yeah, that's true. As uh, Chloe mentioned briefly before, we did implement several safeguards. Uh, we saw in earlier studies that extreme hypoxia and prolonged exposure to an FeO2 of 100% may increase mortality. Uh, so therefore, you can expect that without those safeguards, we would have seen a higher mortality in both groups. But I think it's always important to prioritize well-being of the patients. So if you know in advance that a treatment can be harmful, it's not ethical to carry out the treatment in that way. And also allowing that will be not a realistic reflection of clinical practice. You raise a very good point about the balance of trying to do a well-conducted study and still maintaining ethical integrity. The study was designed originally for 1,500 patients, but you terminated it early. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why the study was terminated. Well, of course, I can tell you a little bit about that. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, all research was stopped in our hospital. So therefore, the trial was paused and started multiple times over a period of two years, mainly due to a changing COVID-19 infection rate. So we noticed every time that it was harder to start again, also because the workload in the ICU kept rising and all the additional tasks, such as trials, were too much for the clinicians. So this in combination with that, we estimated that it would take another five years at that current pace to complete the trial, we decided to terminate early. Yeah, it's unfortunate. COVID derailed a lot of studies. How, how do you think we should interpret the findings of your study when the population that you had is much less than the intended population? Well, it's, of course, very important when you interpret our results that, we, that you take in mind that we did not reach our inclusion goals. So therefore, our statistical power was reduced. And we found in our results that there was no difference in 28-day mortality between the high and the low group. However, we did see a trend in the lower mortality in the higher oxygenation group. So possibly if we went on, this would have become significant, but we will never know. There are two, two very large trials, the UK ROCs and the Mega ROCs, that are including uh, 16,500 and 40,000 patients. So it will be very interesting to see if these studies will show significant differences. 
Yeah, those certainly sound like impressive endeavors. Hopefully, we'll get more clarity with the publication of those studies. So let's cut to the findings of your study. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Well, in our results, we found no difference in 28-day mortality between the high and the low group. And we also saw no differences in our secondary outcomes, which were no difference in ICU, hospital, and 90-day mortality. We also found no difference in ventilator-free days, ICU and hospital length of stay, and ischemic events. But I think it's important to mention the added value of our study, which is that we achieved a difference of 40 millimeters mercury between the two oxygenation targets. We believe it's essential to demonstrate potential intervention effects. And it's important to mention that this difference was higher than that was found in any other trial that was done before. Now, that's an excellent point. I think one of the things that's interesting is that your findings seem to support those of some of the more recent studies like we had talked about, but there's still others that have conflicting findings like the Barrett 2020 New England Journal study or the Gerardus 2016 JAMA study. How do you think we should reconcile all these conflicting data? Well, this is a very interesting question. I think it's important to note that both trials were stopped prematurely before the sample size was reached and that none of the trials that completed their sample size found a significant difference. That being said, I think it's important to mention that the difference that was found of 8% is a very high difference. And it's too big, I think, to be solely attributed to the prematurely stopping of the trial. And it's also important to mention that all trials use different ranges, different target ranges. Also, some studied subgroups and also different measures were used, such as PO2, SPO2, or both. And this can also cause inconsistent results. So we're very excited about the upcoming trials, and maybe they will help us in making more definitive conclusions on target ranges. I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not they offer any more clarity for me at the bedside. I think it's worth noting that we see this tension in medical management between a one-size-fits-all approach and tailored therapy. And I'm wondering if we might be missing the point when we study a single oxygen target for all patients. Do you think there's any patient characteristics that we should be mindful of that might suggest that tailoring therapy might be beneficial? Well, I think that tailoring therapy will be very interesting, but at the moment, we're not really sure yet which patient do best with a high or a low oxygen level. For example, in post-cardiac arrest patients who experience brain damage due to hypoxia, instinctively, you would want to prevent new ischemia by aiming at a higher target. But it's also suggested in new trials that high PO2 levels can be damaging in this group. So I think tailored and a tailored approach would be ideal, but we experienced that up until now, it's not very easy to identify an optimal target for specific patient groups. Well, the hope is perhaps with these large data studies for the UK rocks and mega rocks that someone may be able to identify patient characteristics for future study. One, one last question, what oxygen target do you use in practice? Well, at the moment, I would aim for a target between 60 and 90 millimeters mercury, uh, depending on how challenging it is to achieve those values. For example, if it's easy to achieve those values, then I would be comfortable with a PO2 of 90 millimeters mercury. But if it's difficult, then 
and you need high ventilation settings or proce procedures like prone positioning in order to achieve the target, then I would settle for 60 millimeters mercury. But who knows, maybe the future trials will change these strategies. I do like your point about uh, recognizing that there's sometimes diminishing returns with trying to achieve these targets and recognizing those limitations with the patient. Well, I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Drs. Emane Vanderwall and Chloe Grimm, for an extremely engaging discussion on both their study as well as oxygen targets in the ICU. And I think that although this is a great example of an attempt to you know, confirm other findings, we still have a lot of unresolved questions, and hopefully we'll be seeing some more clarity in the coming years. Thank you so much, Dr. Vanderwall and Dr. Grimm. Thank you. Thank Michael. you. <laughs> this is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.